In our remaining time tonight, we want to continue in our series that we have been endeavoring to wade through entitled Defending Your Faith. And we are, believe it or not, reaching part 10 of this series. And as you know, we took the first eight messages to really take the offensive, to really communicate the truth of what we believe to a watching world. And then in part nine last week, we turned a bit of a corner and we talked about a defensive approach, and that is defending our faith against those who would attack us. And you remember that last time we talked about defending our faith against Jehovah's Witnesses. And tonight we want to talk about defending our faith in part 10 of this series regarding the Mormons, or as they prefer to be called, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And this is a very, very interesting and alarming cult, because as I've said to you before, as I have traveled in Europe, I learned when I was in Belgium two times ago that Mormonism is now a faster-growing religion outside of the United States than it is inside. And that means that it is growing very, very rapidly around the world. It's growing very quickly in our own country, but it's growing even more rapidly outside our country. And we need to be able to reach out to them, to speak the true gospel to them, as well as be able to defend the true nature of Christianity to those who are Mormons. Now, in order for us to do that, we'll need to understand two major areas of the Mormons. And I'll take the same tack that I took last time with regard to the Jehovah's Witnesses, and that is to communicate first their origins and then secondly their theology. And that's really a very simple way for us to tackle this cult, to first try to understand their origins, where did they come from, and then secondly, how do we defend our faith against their theology, against what they believe. Now, I want to say at the outset again, I want you to have your Bibles ready and also a pen or a pencil and a notepad because remember last time we had a very fun time because we took uh, statements from you, from the congregation, as to where you would go in the Scripture to defend your faith when I teach you something of what they believe. And I want you to do that again tonight. I want you to have your minds ready, no one nodding off as we attempt to understand Mormonisms. Now, let me, uh, Mormonism. Now, let me tell you, first of all, about their origins, their origins. And this is going to take us just a brief bit of time, but it's very, very important for you to understand because many people don't really know or understand how the Mormons began. Now, I know that that film several weeks ago went into some detail, but many of you were not there that evening. And so we need to know a little bit about the origins of Mormonism. The Mormon church has a very, very interesting and, as I said earlier, an alarming beginning. Many of you know the founder of Mormonism is Joseph Smith, a man that we'll understand a little bit more about as we move along. For now, I want to quote some of his statements just to give you a gauge on his perspective about himself. This is what Joseph Smith, back in the 1800s, middle 1800s, said about himself. He said, No man knows my history. In other words, uh, it's a cloud or a bit of secrecy or obscurity about exactly who he was in terms of his historical background. He says, no one knows my history. And yet, 
We know from research, even research from within the Mormon church, a great deal about Joseph Smith. There's a lot to know about him. He goes on to say, in the Book of Mormon, it is the most correct book, most correct of any book on the earth, quote unquote. So he makes a very, very astonishing claim about his own writings. The Book of Mormon is the most correct of any book on the earth. He says, I have more to boast of than ever any man had. I am the only man that has ever been able to keep a whole church together since the days of Adam. He says, a large majority of the whole have stood by me. And then this statement, neither Peter... Paul nor Jesus ever did it. I boast that no man ever did such a work as I. The followers of Jesus ran away from him, but the Latter-day Saints never ran away from me yet. That's Joseph Smith. That's the founder of Mormonism. Are you intrigued? Joseph Smith obviously had a lot of the fullness of himself as he started this movement. Now, the above quotation comes from his own writings, and I've gathered some other quotations as well and some other fact-finding about Mormonism itself. They call themselves the Latter-day Saints, as they're commonly called, even though there are some splinter groups. You may have heard of another group called the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which has its origins in Independence, Missouri. There are a number of them. But at least today, the Mormons, after 167 years, I guess maybe 169 years now, they have a considerable amount of worldly goods, material stock, agricultural and industrial wealth, not only in America but abroad. For instance, from its own founding, the Mormon church has been characterized by tremendous zeal to acquire... Um, Thrifty, uh, admirable, uh, missionary endeavors, uh, real estate, land holdings, etc., etc. And since the close of World War II, in keeping with the acceleration of cult pro propaganda anywhere, the Mormons have around 50,000 missionaries that are active today. 50,000. That would make, for instance, a group like the Southern Baptist Convention very, very small in comparison with regard to the number of missionaries that they have. The Mormonism, the, the cult that we call the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, try to teach their young children well. The entire missionary force is broken down into the following percentages. 75% are single males who go out and, as you know, in those two-year junkets where they go out and share their message. 19% single females who are becoming quite a bit more apparent in their missionary zeal. And 6% of married couples also go out. Normally, the practice of the Mormon church is to encourage some of its most promising young people, usually boys who are aged 19 and older and girls aged 21 and older, to perform that two-year of missionary work. And only in recent days has the Mormon church began to subsidize the expenses of the American missionary Mormon movement and also in Canada. Membership in the Mormon church now has increased incredibly at an average rate of, get this, 300,000 conversions each year. 
300,000 conversions every year to Mormonism. 75,000 children's baptisms, which of course means an introduction or an induction into Mormonism. The Mormons, as you know, are uh, a very, very fertile people. They like to have a lot of children. The Mormons have a birth rate of 28.1 per thousand in contrast to the average of 15.9 of the birth rate of the United States. So if the United States is growing at a birth rate of 15.9 per thousand, the Mormons are growing at 28.1 per thousand. Just a growing, rapid proliferation of Mormonism. The uh, income area, as they have attempted to gain wealth, they require of their uh, temple Mormons, those who regularly attend a Mormon temple, 10% of all of their gross income. Now, they have been very, very secretive about where their money uh, goes to, how much money uh, they bring in. But in 1991, the Arizona Republic newspaper ran a series entitled Mormon Inc., Finances and Faith, which estimated that the Mormon church conservatively, quote, collects about $4.3 billion from its members a year, plus $400 million from its many enterprises. The church's investment portfolio easily, quote, exceeds $5 billion, including $1 billion in stocks and bonds and another $1 billion in real estate. The Mormons now have around 50 temples in operation, with many more either in design or under construction on every continent on the globe. In fact, I remember taking uh, several trips to the San Diego area. And as you drive along the freeway there, there was a huge, huge Mormon church that was under construction when I lived out there with a huge angel of Moroni there in gold, just pure gold, just reaching, as it seemed, to the highest part of the sky. Brigham Young University, for instance, that's the Mormon hotbed of the university setting, boasts more than 37,000 students on two campuses. Now, that would rival any secular university that we have in our country. In addition to their regular tithing, you might be interested to know that the Mormon church also encourages what it calls fast offerings, which is an unusual practice for us to hear about. But what they do is that they ask their people to involve themselves in the giving up of two meals on the first Sunday of each month, the price of which is turned over to the church as a voluntary contribution to support and feed the poor. And so they ask their people to give up their food and in return give up their money. And education is very high, especially among young people. They have quote-unquote seminary and quote-unquote institutes, programs for high school and college students with an enrollment, at least in the U.S. of A., with a combined half a million. 500,000 young people are in their schools Uh, tremendous, tremendous growth within the educational system of the Mormons. The church also has more than 50 schools, 50 seminaries or institutes or educational institutions outside of the United States, most of which are in Mexico and in the South Pacific. So there is a tremendous amount of growth, education, and money within the Mormon church. You probably have heard, have you not, of the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. Mormon Tabernacle Choir has become famous. It's well known to all radio listeners. 
The choir contains 350 singers, has a repertoire of hundreds of anthems. They began broadcasting in 1929 and have continuously broadcasted and have gone all the way around the world. Mormon leaders themselves have become very, very powerful. In fact, in all of the branches of government, Mormons are very, very powerful. A former Treasury Secretary, David Kennedy, is a Mormon. A former Secretary of Agriculture, Ezra Taft Benson, was the late 13th prophet of the Mormon church. Former Treasurer's Angela Bay Buchanan, the late Ivy Baker Priest. Former Education Secretary Terrell Bell, numerous U.S. ambassadors, dozens of U.S. senators. You probably saw during uh, the impeachment process Senator Orrin Hatch, who was a very famous Mormon from Utah. They have tremendous, tremendous uh, opportunity to move in and through our governmental system. And that's just really naming a few of them who have uh, some of the highest levels and authorities of power in our land. Well, you say, well, how did all of this begin? I mean, who is this Joseph Smith anyway? Well, let me tell you a little bit about him. Joseph Smith, who called himself a prophet, and uh, some of the quotes that I read a moment ago, you would understand why he would refer to himself as a prophet. He was born in... Uh, Sharon, Vermont, December 23, 1805. He was the fourth child of Lucy and Joseph Smith, and he entered the world with uh, the proverbial two strikes against him in the person of his father and his environment. He had uh, a mystical side to him. He was a man who spent a great deal of his time digging up imaginary buried treasure. Now, the Mormon church would not want you to know a lot of this historical background. They've done a very, very good and effective job at suppressing a lot of this, especially for their own people. But Joseph Smith was a very, very strange fellow, to say the least. He thought himself to be able to have the ability to see through a stone, at that time called a peep stone. And he was able to see through this stone or even through some glass to see where the buried treasure was lying. He was interested in tre- treasure seeking even after he became president of the LDS church. Quote, that occult dimensions of treasure digging was prominent among the first members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles organized in 1835, end quote. In other words, because he was very, very interested in all kinds of treasure seeking and treasure hunting and treasure digging, he brought that in to his new cult, this new group that he started. And even the first organization of the eldership, the first twelve, were heavily involved in occult dimensions, occult practices. The year 1820 proved to be a real beginning of this prophet's call, for that is the year in which he says that he allegedly was the recipient of a marvelous vision in which two gods appeared to him, God the Father and God the Son, and they materialized in his presence, and they spoke to this young man, Joseph Smith, and they said he was a pious young man. He was in the wooded area of that particular location. And the prophet records this incident. He reveals in the Pearl of Great Price, in uh, volume 1, pages 1 to 25, that the two personages took a dim view of the Christian church. In other words, they said, everybody has apostatized. And because the world was in the shape it was in, they were going to announce through Joseph Smith that a restoration of true Christianity was needed and that he, Joseph Smith Jr., had been chosen to launch this new dispensation. 
that God was now going to work through one man, Joseph Smith. And if you don't believe that, you can find in virtually all of their writings that they believe that Mormonism is true Christianity and that Christianity really is mediated through the Mormon church. The Mormon church has always held the position that they alone represent true Christianity. This particular man, Joseph Smith, I wish I could go on to tell you about him, but at least to say this. In 1820, he claimed this heavenly vision that the Lord had singled him out as a prophet of this age. And it was in 1823 with the appearance of the angel Moroni in the moment of Joseph Smith's sleep at his bedside that he began his relationship by being given by this angel some tablets or some golden plates which were to become ultimately the Book of Mormon. And they, of course, were then those particular works for which he believed he translated from what he called Reform Egyptian, for which there really is no such thing as you begin to study the history of Oriental languages, dead languages now, but at least at that time and to this day no one knows anything about that particular language. He said he did. It ultimately came under the auspices of the Book of Mormon and another book called The Pearl of Great Price. This angel of Moroni, this glorified son of one Mormon, he believed that it was his duty to give Joseph Smith this new revelation. Joseph Smith took it and then he began what we now know as the Mormon church. Now in 1827, Joseph Smith claimed to receive these golden plates upon which the Book of Mormon is alleged to have been written. And shortly after this, several people began trying to align themselves with this, what appeared to be a very, very intellectual and a very, very interesting and provocative man, Joseph Smith. And during that time, there was one man by the name of Oliver Cowdery, an itinerant school teacher who visited Smith at his home and supposedly... Joseph Smith, while a curtain was separating the two, translated these books, these plates, into English for which this other man, Cowdery, began to write down for which they now believe was the miraculous and instantaneous moment for which God was communicating through Joseph Smith so that we could be the recipients of God's Word to us. That is precisely what Mormonism teaches. And you heard even in that film about some of these things. That's what they believe even to this day. And even if it means that some of the things that they would, would be embarrassed by regarding Joseph Smith still being true, they would still believe that God was working through this man. There are many, many other facets of the Mormon church which I think are very, very interesting as to its origins. But at least you can see that film. We have it in the library. You can see some of the things that I have instructed you about tonight. Now I want to go to some of the very, very interesting teachings of the Mormon church. I want us to go in a particular direction. And what I want to do is I want us to take four teachings of the Mormon church, four teachings, and I want you to tell me what you believe the Word of God says to these particular areas. We're going to talk about four very, very quickly tonight as we attempt to close off our time. And the first one is going to be the theology of Mormonism and their view of Scripture. Because that's the very most important place we need to go. What do the Mormons believe regarding Scripture? Well, according to their religion, they believe that there are at least five sources. 
five sources for which they appeal when they talk about Scripture. When you and I talk about Scripture, we talk about that which is contained in the Old and New Testaments. 39 books of the Old Testament, 27 books of the New. They have five truth sources. They also affirm the Old and New Testament as a source. They affirm the Bible as it is presented to us in the King James Version. That's number one. Number two, they have a book for which I mentioned earlier called the Book of Mormon. Thirdly, they have a book that they have collected called Doctrine and Covenants. Doctrine and Covenants. And then fourthly, they have a book called The Pearl of Great Price. Many of these things historical in nature, but very, very important to Mormons. And then fifthly, and probably most importantly, not only do they have those things which have, which have been codified and put into a book, but they also have a fifth level or source of truth in their minds, and that is the leadership of the Mormon church. You may have even become aware in recent years about the Mormon church and their change in regard uh, to the race of African Americans or the race of black people in general and how they've begun to try to reverse themselves with regard to their earlier teachings. Well, the reason that they can do that along with some other teachings is because they believe that God mediates His revelation through the leadership of the Mormon church, specifically the president, the one who is in charge. And all through their history, they have come to a place of affirming all five truth sources. Now, if you were to believe that, if a Mormon were to come to your door and you were talking to him or her about what they believe and you ask them, what is your source of authority? And they were to tell you that these are our sources of authority, what would you say? How would you respond if someone said... As a Mormon, I believe the Bible. I believe in the Scripture. And if you were to say, what constitutes for you the Scripture? And if they were to say, the Doctrine and Covenants, the Pearl of Great Price, the Book of Mormon, the Old and New Testaments, and the leadership of our church, what would you say? How would you immediately begin to attempt to defend your faith against that kind of teaching and belief? Anyone? What would you say? Yes. Okay, you don't add to the Word of God. Where would you go? What passage of Scripture might you appeal? All right, Revelation 22.18. What does it say? Revelation 22.18. It talks about the fact... John the Apostle says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. Now, you could even make a case that because this is the last book of the Bible... You can surmise that everything that has been, been written up to this point cannot be added to or taken away from. So that's a very good passage to go to. What other passages might you appeal to? Ron? Okay, First Peter chapter 1.
Good, Ron. Second Peter chapter 1 in verses 3 and 4, and then verses 19, 20, and 21. I mean, that seems to hit right at the heart of the origin of the Mormon movement, because it says, For no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. And clearly, there are many things within all of those books which are clearly a matter of his own interpretation. And if they are a matter of his own interpretation, then it cannot be said to be a part of Holy Scripture. Any other passages that come to your mind? Yes. Proverbs 35 and 6, which says, Do not lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will, he will make your path straight. How about another passage? Yes, Jack. Jude 3. Jude 3, very good. Jude 3, it talks about the fact that Jude had been intending to write to his readers, and he had to stop. Why did he have to stop? Well, he says... I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, but I believed it was necessary to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. And that little concept there of that phrase, the faith, when it has the article in front of it, it's really talking about the revealed truth, the truth of Scripture. And he says that the truth of Scripture has been once for all handed down to the saints. That's a very, very good one to, to refer to them in this regard. Mark? Galatians 1, 6 through 10. Yes, that's talking about the fact that if anyone comes to you and preaches to you a gospel contrary to that which you've heard, let him be what? Accursed, damned, consigned to judgment. Yes, even an angel from heaven. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought she said Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Proverbs 30, 5, and 6. I'm sorry. It says, Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Do not add to His words, or He will reprove you, and you will be proved a liar. Yes, very, very good. That's a verse along with, uh, say, for instance... John 10, 35, which says the Scripture cannot be what? Broken. In other words, there's, a, there's a, uh, an unbrokenness to that which we have in the Old and New Testaments. Can't be added to or taken away from. All right. That's good. That's very, very good. One last one. Hey, good. There's a whole list of them. That's right. That message on Sola Scriptura is really a message that talks about the singular authority and the sole authority of the Scripture. So now you have about five or six passages for which you could at least begin dialogue with Mormons where they would need to come up with answers to those passages that you have given. I don't have time to mention several of the most glaring quotes from them regarding the issue of Scripture, but at least that's enough for you to say, I'm armed with at least some passages which I can begin to say, look, you have a truth source, and you believe it has five arms to it. I'm telling you that there's only one source, and that is the revelation of God as revealed in Holy Scripture, Old and New Testaments alone, right? All right, number two, the Mormons and their view of God the Father. We're going to hurry, hurry, hurry. The Mormons and their view of God the Father. Just listen to a few things that they say about this. And I want you to be thinking about how you would respond. This is the teachings of Joseph Smith. In the beginning, the head of the gods 
called a council of the gods, and they came together and concocted a plan to create the world and people in it. Quote, God himself was once as we are now and is an exalted man. Quote, the Father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's, the Son also, but the Holy Ghost has not a body of flesh and bones, but is a personage of spirit. God exists, and we had better strive to be prepared to be one with them, Brigham Young said. And then probably the most famous quote that Mormons are very, very fond of using, as man is, God once was. As God is, man may become. In other words, Mormons teach, as you saw on the video, that we have the capability to become in one day just like God Himself. Why? Because at one day, God was just like we are now. Now, if a Mormon came to your door, knock, 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 and said, this is what I believe about God the Father, this is what I believe about God the Son, how would you respond? What would you say? David? Very good. John 4.24. God is spirit. What did Jesus say about the Father? He said, I have what? Flesh and bones. But does God? No. He's a spirit. Has God the Father ever in Scripture been manifested with flesh and bones? You know, any reference... I don't know of a reference where God the Father has ever been manifested with a physical presence. Now, we can say that maybe the burning bush, etc., etc., but not in the form of a man, right? So right there, you will ask the Mormons with the Old and New Testaments only. That's only the place that you want to take them. You want to ask them the question, show me in Scripture where it says that God the Father was once a man. Richard? John 1. Yes, you really have to ask yourself the question. You have to ask Mormons. Look, if God was once a man like we are now, then who made him? And what do you assume Mormons would say? Somebody else. Well, who made that somebody else? Somebody else. And you have this circular argumentation that never really hits at the heart of what the Bible truly teaches. And so this is one of these clear places that you're going to need to know several passages that refute the idea that Mormonism has anything to do with true Christianity in relation to God the Father and His biblical definition, what the Bible defines God the Father as being. A couple of other quotes that are very, very interesting. When our father Adam came into the Garden of Eden, this is Brigham Young again, he came into it with a celestial body and brought Eve, one of his wives, with him. He helped to make and organize this world. He is Michael, the archangel, the Ancient of Days, about whom holy men have written and spoken. He is our Father and our God and the only God with whom we have to do. Now really what you begin to find when you research out the Mormon religion 
is a whole host of contradictory and competing and erroneous teachings that have absolutely nothing to do with the God of the Bible. And what's interesting about it is that the Mormon religion continues, insists to the highest degree that they've not taught anything that was inconsistent with either the Old and New Testaments. In fact, several years ago, in 1988, uh, Dr. Michael Quinn wrote a book exposing much uh, original research regarding the Mormon church and all of these inconsistencies and the true history of the origins of that religion. And he was excommunicated. And so there's a very, very concerted effort to try to suppress anything that would give the true history of the church. And when they tell you what they believe, the only places that they often can appeal to are those sources that are outside the Old and New Testaments. And that's where we need to go when we deal with them. All right, we talked about John 1. We talked about some other passages. Where else would you go? John chapter 4 we talked about. Where else would you go? Byron? Good. Colossians 1.15. What's it talking about there? Good. Excellent. That little phrase right there, the invisible God. That should answer part of the question, right? God is invisible. God is a spirit. He can't be seen by a human eye. In fact, there are other passages in the Old Testament that talk about God as though if you were to perceive of Him, if you were to see Him, what would happen to you? You would be consumed. You would die. You would be incinerated because of His holiness. All right? James 1.17. Very good. God doesn't change. God doesn't change in His essential nature. And so if He is, is a spirit and if He does not have flesh and bones... That essential nature is unchanged. The, the only God that we could say, the only person who has been revealed to us is the person of Christ. And that's the way it's always going to be. When we go to heaven, we're going to see the person of Christ. He will be our God. He is our God. And He will be revealed to us. We'll see the nail prints in His hands. We'll see Him who, for who He is. And He will be God's revelation to us. Yes, Betty? Good. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. And you're now recognizing that some of these very clear passages that we've talked about, both with JW, JWs and the Mormons, are very good passages for both groups. I see a hand way back there. Mary Kate? 1 John 4.12. Very good. Very good. No one has seen God at any time. Excellent. Those are the kind of passages that you want to go to when you talk with Mormons. All right, let's go to number three. The Mormons and their view of Christ. The Mormons and their view of Christ. This is probably some of the most damning teaching of the Mormon church. Here's what they believe. They believe that the Mormon Savior the one who saves them, is not the second person of the Trinity, according to Christianity. Since Mormons reject the Trinity, he's not even a careful replica of the New Testament Redeemer. In Mormon theology, here's what they believe, that Christ, as a pre-existent spirit, was not only the spirit brother of the devil, as alluded to in the Pearl of Great Price, 
but celebrated his own marriage to Mary and Martha and the other Mary at Cana of Galilee. That that was the actual marriage ceremony of Christ himself. Quote, whereby he could see his seed before he was crucified, unquote. They utterly reject the virgin birth of Christ. So where would you go if this kind of Christ was being presented to you, Bob? All right, good. It's talking about there the fact that Christ has given his life as a sacrifice so that our redemption could be purchased at the price of his own blood. The Mormons, by the way, go on to say that they believe that the cross of Christ in the form of the shedding of his blood was actually ineffective for the cleansing of some sins. There were some sins for which his substitutionary atonement was not effective And they have officially repudiated the blood atonement theory that the Bible teaches. You know what happens when you read the Mormons as I have done and so many of you have done? The more you read, the more you begin to ask yourself the question, number one, where did they come up with all of this? But number two, is it really anything to do with Christianity at all? So often, the more you read, the more you begin to realize that it is the fanciful concoctions of mere men and really isn't anything to do with Christianity. And yet, that is not what you're going to hear from them. As I've told you before, they have come up with a very elaborate marketing strategy for which now they invite all kinds of people out to Salt Lake City to tour their facilities. They've now tried to take away the name Joseph Smith from from their vocabulary, knowing how embarrassing it can be. And they now refer to themselves as Christians. They talk about Christianity in such ways that the undiscerning person has no idea of the difference. What other passages might you go to to speak to them of the true work and person of Christ? Where would you go? Acts 2.36. Acts 2.36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. In an effort to teach them that Jesus is that Christ, Jesus is that Lord. Yes. Is that Perry? I'm sorry, I didn't hear it. Hebrews 10, 10 through 14. What does that teach us about the person of Christ, Perry? Good. Good. There are a number of passages in the book of Hebrews that definitively talks about the once-for-all sacrificial atoning work of Christ and that that sacrifice meant a once-for-all atonement for all sins. There's another passage in Colossians 2 which talks about the fact that the crucifixion of Christ and the cross of Christ has allowed us to see all of our sins forgiven. Not just some sins, as they attest, but all our sins forgiven. What are some other passages? Yes. 1 John 2.2, talking about our Lord's propitiation. And He Himself is the propitiation of our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Hebrews 1.3, I think you said. 
He's the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature. He upholds all things by the word of His power. And when He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That is also, by the way, a very technical way. That sitting down at the right hand of the majesty. That's a technical term that is speaking about the finished work of redemption. The finished work of redemption. Christ has completely atoned for the sins of everyone who would ever believe. Lee? Colossians 1, 16 through 20. Yes, Byron, I think, alluded to that one before. That's a very good one. Richard? Revelation 1. Very good. He's the Alpha and the Omega. I hope you're writing all of these passages down. Gary? John 14, 6. Yes. In other words, if there are some sins for which Christ's atonement is not valid, is not going to work, then how could it be that Jesus could say about Himself that He is the only way, the only truth, the only life, if there, in fact, through the atonement of Christ, are some sins which cannot be atoned or are not atoned? Very good. Artie? John 8, 36. Very good. If Christ sets you free, then you are free indeed, completely free, really free. Yes, David? Very good. Matthew 1, a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. There are a number of these, and I want you to write some of these down again so that you can have an armament. You can have a whole host of passages which speak of the true atonement of Christ. That Christ that they preach is not the Christ of Scripture. And one thing you want to do when they knock on your door is have them as much as they are able to do, and believe me, they are trained fastidiously in what they believe, to acknowledge to you that there are some sins for which Christ did not atone. And then you share with them some of these passages. All right, let's go to number four as we close tonight. The Mormons and their view of salvation. Now, it is common that in Mormon literature you'll hear this statement, all men are saved by grace alone without any act on their part. Now, that sounds pretty reasonable. But as you go on, here's what you, you really hear they mean by grace. Quote, Grace is simply the mercy, the love, and the condescension God has for His children, as a result of which He has ordained the plan of salvation so that they may have power to progress and become like Him. You hear that last phrase? A progression to become like God. Is salvation a progressive issue? Salvation is a declarative act whereby God pronounces that the guilty sinner is now no longer guilty because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. It's not a progression so that I might become like God. If there is a progression that I become more like Christ, what do we call that doctrine? Sanctification. Very good. Mormons do not believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They say, Christians speak often of the blood of Christ and its cleansing power. Much that is believed and taught on this subject, however, is such utter nonsense and so palpably false that to believe it is to lose one's salvation. Many go so far, for instance, as to pretend 
and at least to believe that if we confess Christ with our lips and avow that we accept Him as our personal Savior, we are thereby saved. His blood, without other act than mere belief, they say makes us clean. Finally, in our day, He has said plainly, My blood shall not cleanse them if they hear me not. Salvation in the kingdom of God is available because of the atoning blood of Christ, but it is received only on condition of faith. Here here are their ingredients. Faith, repentance, baptism, and enduring to the end in keeping the commandments of God. You see, in the final analysis, their salvation is a salvation by works. They say four things principally. Repentance, faith, baptism, and keeping the commandments of God. And that's very typical of their teaching. This salvation by grace through faith, plus or minus nothing, is abhorrent to them. They utterly repudiate it. In Brigham Young's theology... Instead of receiving the gospel to become the sons of God, he says, my language would be to receive the gospel that we may continue to be the sons of God. See, they already start with the premise that we already are the sons of God and we simply have to be on the right track. And that right track in their minds is the Mormon church. They have very many teachings on this subject that are completely foreign to the New Testament. The Apostle Paul points out with devastating force in Romans 9.8, they, they which are the children of flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. In other words, the only way that we have right standing with God is a salvation that has been granted to us. There is no amount of law keeping, no amount of command-keeping that we could ever undergo. Even baptism itself, while it is a command to be obeyed in the New Testament, is only a command after one is saved, not for the purpose of salvation. What other passages would you go to as we close tonight? What other passages? Yes, okay. Good, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which talks about the fact that, that works cannot be boasted of of any kind. 2, 2 8, and 9, yes. Romans 4, 5. Which says what? Good. The one who does not work. The one who does not work. Very good. Yes. Acts 16.31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Very good. What others? Yes, Bob. John 1.12, but to many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. He goes on to say, not by the will of man, not by blood, not by any of those things, but by the mercy of God. Yes, Mike? 2 Corinthians 5.21. Very good, 2 Corinthians 5.21. It's talking about a righteousness that we don't have in and of ourselves, but it's the righteousness of Christ which is our Atonement. That's absolutely great. I love these passages because they really work at the very heart of a doctrine of salvation by grace through faith plus or minus nothing. Maybe a couple of others as we close. What? Romans 6.23. We know it well. What else? Jerry Poles, I saw your hand. Galatians 2.21. What does it say, Jerry? Very good. There was another hand. Yes. 
Titus 3.5. I was going to save that for Dr. Z. That's one of his favorites. What does it say, Dr. Z? Yes. It's not by any deeds that we have done, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Titus 3.5, great, great passage in that regard. All right. Yes, Artie, one more. Yes, Romans 5, the one act of righteousness, which is the one act of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Well, that's great. I want you to, to have these passages in your mind. Now, remember, I'm going to rework all of these things into a handout, which I'll be giving to you just as I have all of the rest. The Jehovah's Witness handout is in the back. There are also some other little booklets that we've ordered for you. This is our attempt, beloved, to try as a leadership to give you the kind of grounding in the truth so that when you come upon these people, it may not always be that they're knocking on your door. It may also be that they're your neighbors, right? I've even talked with some of you. You have Mormon neighbors, and so you have regular contact with them. Dialogue with them. Talk with them about these things. Share the true gospel of Jesus Christ with them. Arm yourself with these passages so that you can preach the true gospel to them. That's the most loving thing that we can do to Mormons. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for the time that we've shared tonight. Thank you for giving us a brief glance. It's so... It's so unfortunate in many ways, Lord, that we don't have enough time to share all of the things, all of the passages which really speak of handling Mormons with solid biblical truth. Lord, I pray that this would just be a spur, a springboard to allow each one of us the greater opportunity to study on our own, to read books on the subject, to really have a defensible faith because we have been so grounded in the truth of your word that we would be able to share not only with Mormons but by many, many people around us who say they represent true Christianity but who in fact do not. Lord, I pray that there would be people in this congregation who would have opportunities to share the gospel message with these people because they desperately need the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I wanted to mention to you as well a very, very wonderful opportunity that I had uh, when I presented to you that message on the Jehovah's Witnesses, and we did this repartee back and forth with some of these passages, and I had some passages in my mind, you had some passages in your mind, and we had a great time that evening. Well, not 12 hours removed from that, Early on Monday morning at about 7.15 a.m., I was taking Lauren over to someone's house for some time with their daughter, and I needed some gas in my car. And so I went over to this Exxon right over here, and it was, it was a holiday, I think it was, that day. And there, were, there was no one around. There was no one on the streets. It was 7.15 in the morning, and I pulled up with Lauren, put some gas in my car, and one other car pulled up the whole time when we were there, to put some gas in their car, and a lady placed herself outside the car, walked up to me, and handed me a track, and I said, you're a Jehovah's Witness, aren't you? She said, yes, I am. 
I said, you know, I just preached about your church last night. And she said, you did? What did you say? And boy, did we have a conversation. And you know, I prayed that night, didn't I, that the Lord would give us opportunity to share that message with Jehovah's Witnesses. And the Lord was so gracious. I called my mother in the car right when I was pulling off. And I said, Mom, who is, of course, as you know, a former JW, I said, you'll never guess what happened. And I told her all about it. And she said, I'm going to be praying for that lady because she says, I know the bondage that she is under. And we, I just had a tremendous opportunity. Now, she did not... I wish I could go on to say she repented. She got down on her knees right there. She didn't. If she would have, I would have picked her up immediately. And I would have said to her, Now, look, I want you to know that this is the path of true Christianity. And I would have brought her to the Bible Church of Little Rock. Needless to say, she did not repent. But I did say to her, right as I was ending, I want you to know something. That you are in a false religion. And that you don't know Jesus Christ. And I presented to you Jesus Christ this morning. And I want you to know that in the providence of God, He has brought you right here to my own car in order for me to give you that testimony. I am free of the blood that is upon you because you have rejected the true Jesus Christ of God's Word. And I tell you, I walked away from that experience, and even though she disagreed with that, I had the most wonderful thought in my mind, and that is that God gave me an opportunity, and I dispensed that opportunity with what I considered the power of God's Word, and I know that forever God is gracious, and He, in His mercy, gave that person an opportunity to respond to the grace of God. And if that person does not, God be praised, because Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a savor of life unto life or a savor of death unto death. And in both, God is glorified. Now, we don't like to think about it in those terms because we'd like to assume that ultimately everybody's in. But we know that's not true. And I believe that that woman has now heard the true gospel of Christ. That's the kind of witnessing that we want to do. That's the kind of thing we want to do to reach out to other people. Share with your Mormon friends. You're dismissed.